0: You're listening to the Vulnerability Academy podcast from UK Finance and the Money Advice Trust. Exploring essential knowledge and strategic practice. Hello there. Now, there are many ways to tell the story of debt collection and vulnerability. We could start with the obvious point that people living with debt frequently experience other problems, health, personal, family, that make their situation far harder to manage and resolve. And in these situations, debt collection staff are often the first to encounter or hear about this when people struggle to make the repayments. Or we could equally begin by tracing long-standing public concerns about how indebted people are treated when they disclose a the vulnerable situation to creditors, and how debts are then physically collected from them. However, although these themes feature strongly in today's podcast, we've chosen a different starting point, and I'll tell you why in a moment. In 2007, Anthony Sharp and the Money Advice Liaison Group published a set of guidelines for debt collection that many now cite as a key milestone for the industry. Although carrying the undoubtedly less-than-revolutionary title of Good Practice Guidelines, Debt Management and Debt Collection in relation to people with mental health problems, the 13 recommendations within this guidance had an arguably profound impact on collections activity. Giving birth to new tools, such as the Debt and Mental Health Evidence Form, being cited and recited as best practice in trade association and regulatory codes, including important parts of the FCA's CONC guidelines, C7.2.3 if you're a CONC head, many still argue that the mail guidance helped not only change collection's practice on mental health, but also provided a vital template and catalyst for those who recognised the need to also look beyond mental health and to address the other forms of vulnerability and difficulty that customers were experiencing. Now, more than a decade later, and you'll hear many other milestones along this road, collections departments have undoubtedly changed. They're now frequently seen as the specialists in their own organisations when it comes to vulnerability, and also often where the vulnerability specialist team for a whole organisation is located or has grown from that location. But this all prompts our question for today. Even though change has happened, what practical difference has this all really made to the lives of people living with debt and those who are actually collecting debt from them? What progress has actually been achieved within the collections sector and have some parts done better than others? And is it really the case, given the experience of those working in collections on vulnerability, that there isn't much more that collections can learn or be taught about vulnerability? Joining me to discuss this, I have four people who all have a perspective on collections and vulnerability – all of whom have experience that goes back quite a way, including beyond the original mail guidance of And of whom, too, have strong personal or organisational links to the guidance itself. Colin Trend is the lead tutor of the Money Advice Trust on their Vulnerability and Mental Health programme. Colin is also project manager at Plymouth Focus Advice Centre and was one of the co-authors of the 2007 mail guidance. Hello, Colin. Hi. Got Bob Kingdon. Uh, Bob Kingdon is a Director of Compliance, Intram UK. Hi, Bob. Hi, Chris. Uh, Specialising debt purchase, Interim has also introduced the Ethical Collections Initiative for local authorities. And Bob is a passionate supporter of treating customers the way he would expect his
1: mum to be treated. Absolutely right, Chris. I think as you need a moral compass, and when you're faced with what you might call difficult decisions, you would think. If my mum was treated like that, would I be comfortable? And that is my moral compass. That's good.
0: And uh, we've got Sarah Williams, who may be helping Bob's mum with her <laughs> debts at the moment. Um, Sarah is a debt advisor who five years ago set up her own personal website, the Debt Camel, mm-hmm. uh, where she writes about anything debt-related from high-cost credit to improving debt advice. And we've got Emma Banjies, who's Customer Enhancement Manager and Group Vulnerability Champion at Cabot Financial. Hello, Emma. Hello, Sarah. Hello, Hello. Chris. Hello. So... um. What I want to do is I want us to start by broadly looking back. So Emma and Bob, cast your minds back. Yeah, the heady days of your youth. Can you tell us what debt collection was like at the end of the 1990s, the start of the 2000s? You know, thinking about vulnerability, what was different to the current approach and discussion that we're having now?
1: I think the word... I've written down here is unenlightened and I think that's twofold. I think the industry itself was completely unenlightened. I think it was he who shouts loudest gets the biggest payment but I also think customers were unenlightened in that they didn't truly understand why they felt the way they did and I I truly believe that it's changed so much which we'll obviously talk about in a short while is that when people felt awful they didn't realise they had depression. It was a kind of uh, it was the unseen and unspoken illness. Uh, yes, I think people people really didn't understand what was happening to them. And I think what's changed over the years is there's a greater public awareness. People are more uh, honest and that's helped change the industry completely.
0: Okay, so societal change but also kind of organisational change as well since that point. I mean, the phrase cash is king is often used to describe a particular period of debt collection. Would it be fair to say... That was the approach around the sorry, the, uh, the end of the 90s, start of the 2000s?
1: I think the answer is yes. Um, I think it was, as I said before, he who shouts loudest, as creditors contacted people, uh, their personal situation, their personal vulnerability was secondary to... Um, As you say, cash is king, trying to get the money as quickly as possible without any care for the individual. Um, And I think one of the things we'll talk about is what's changed. And I think probably the first thing that did change in the 90s was the Office of Fair Trading's debt collection guidance, which was probably the first document we ever read where a regulator stated, this is how we think customers should be treated. And that, I think, started the radical shift in in culture of treating people correctly.
0: Emma, did you see things in a similar way to Bob. What was going on?
2: Um, Very much so. I think, you know, working um, at Cabot for the last 10 years and Cabot being now one of the leading largest debt purchases in the UK and having 20 years worth of experience, we've seen quite a significant transition of how customers should be treated, which is really positive for me because I'll echo Bob's point, you know, from my point of view, nowadays there's a real keen interest in building You into customer design, the elements of vulnerability. Um, But again, you know, I expect people to engage with our customers similar to Bob as, you know, how would you like your parents, your grandpa to be treated because we're all susceptible to that situation. I think the evolution of guidance that's out there, education, society, um, acceptance as well, customers now... um, have the right level of expectation that when they are making such disclosures um there's not that stigma as much as there used to be um and and for us the way that we see that today compared to what it was like before is we have a responsibility um and really do believe in the responsibility to protect the financial well-being of those customers um, and there's a keen a real keen desire nowadays as maybe not so much focus you know, 10 years ago.
0: Mm. So Sarah and Colin, you know, uh, a unanimous perspective from Bob and Emma, things have changed. In in your eyes as advisors, debt advisors, dealing with clients day in, day out, have you seen this shift?
3: There certainly has been a huge shift in that if I'm making a phone call on behalf of a client who's with me who is vulnerable, I would expect to be reasonably treated. I wouldn't feel surprised when that client was reasonably treated, it is now what you would expect to happen. You can explain someone's situation, you can ask to be put through to the vulnerable customer team, you can make sensible offers and have a good conversation. Where I think I would disagree is that not all customers are actually getting to talk to a debt advisor and lots of people are still disengaged from the whole process because, I think Bobby's the word enlightened, people are still actually ashamed very often of the situation they're in and they might think it's their fault or even if they don't think it's their fault, they think there's nothing that can be done about it. And in this situation they won't tend to engage and they won't explain their situation And they can't be treated as vulnerable unless it's recognised that they are vulnerable. And that, I think, is the huge challenge now. And
0: we'll come on to communications a little later in our discussion. But what you seem to be saying there is um, the response has improved. But actually getting people to proactively disclose or engage around
4: their debt is is still a real barrier? Yes. Colin, how are you seeing things, uh, Plymouth? So, so I, I, <clears throat> excuse me. I know you won't believe this, Chris, but I go back to the mid '90s when I started. I um, strongly believe that. Advising, <laughs> <laughs> advising clients in a CAB on a voluntary basis, and um, I think what Bob said was absolutely right: that cash was king. Um, people were intimidated, and and to some degree, the more intimidation, the more the better the results. Um, And and so there was this incredible disconnect between people, I mean, generally not just people in vulnerable circumstances as much as uh, those who worked or or were administering the debt collection side. I think there's there's just a wider aspect I'd like to make at this point as well, if you don't mind, because the podcasts obviously all connect with each other. It isn't just about vulnerability today. So we come across a drop curb that's taken place over the years as well, which was the introduction of the Common Financial Statement, now the Standard Financial Statement. So this is something that's been immensely um, useful um, for all companies. Customers, um, but I think as a debt advisor, I would say it's it's hugely successful too for those in vulnerable situations, vulnerable circumstances, um, and you can't ignore those factors. It's another key change, like the OFT debt collection guidance and, and other uh, materials as well. But that is a significant impact here in in the wider context.
0: So we've had the OFT pointed out as a milestone that Bob mentioned. We've had the uh, common financial statement, standard financial statement. Even um, Sarah and uh,
3: Emma, other milestones along this journey. So, so we map it out. What stands out for you? I I think the FCA's treating customer fairly mantra is fundamental to how customers should be treated. And I think that is sinking into the culture. And uh, it's hard to p- pinpoint exactly what has changed, but it, it does result in a, a very different approach to mm-hmm. people. Very
2: I think from my point of view, I think, yes, you know, over the years, a number of organisations have taken steps to heed to some of those principles set out by the FCA. And as you (laughs) rightly said before, you know, the OFT was making good headway to a degree. I still think there are a number of organisations got a a fair way to go yet. Um, You know, for us, we partner with our clients and a number of different high street banks, etc., and I think, you know, from their point of view, they're very keen to make sure that they um, are building in to their model ways in which to detect that up front. Um, we see the back end of that. Um, and, and you know, for me, it's about raising the awareness and education. Um, right from, you know, people that are young um, through school, et cetera, is, you know, we're in a position where we're going to have to deal with what this looks like when it reaches a point that's a little bit too late. And I think we all have a bit of a responsibility to make sure that we educate much earlier on. So, you know, if people who are adheeding to the FCA principles, that's great. Um, but again, we can't just say that we are. Um, we've got to be able to demonstrate and evidence that we are and actually have a real desire to understand the value, be that commercially and morally, that actually you can get a good return if you work with people in the right way.
0: Fantastic. Hold that thought about return. We'll come back to that. So just before we move on, one thing that's definitely changed is the language uh, around collections. We've had the introduction of the um, of the V word vulnerability that kind of came in from twenty fifteen. There's a a variety of expressions on people's faces here when I've said that. So it's kind of but the language around vulnerability uh, has been an interesting one for collections. I just wondered, um, Colin and Emma, just um, how meaningful is it to use the term vulnerable when we talk about people who are experiencing financial difficulty alone? You know, i.e., without any other conditions or factors. Because after all, this would mean that everybody in financial difficulty or in
4: contact with collections automatically becomes a vulnerable customer. Does that make sense? So I've heard this language spoken in various firms and so um, you have to reference that with what it says in Congate.2.8, I think it is, where the the FCA says um, anyone... Who is in financial difficulty could be considered to be in a vulnerable situation. So, some, and, and I think for, for creditors who aren't particularly <laughs> looking at Section 8, which is where the, the debt um, advice sector is, you can overlap that with 7.2.1, where it t- talks about um, creditors needing to have effective processes in place to assist people who are in financial difficulty. And then it has a second bullet point which says assisting those who might be in vulnerable circumstances or words to that effect. Um, so, so, so I think we we have to sort of separate this vulnerable thing, as it were, into what I would term as as um, financial vulnerability, non-financial vulnerability. And I think seven point two point one does that quite clearly. So you can say from seven point two point one, okay, so we have a group of um, individuals, and, and and maybe if not all of our individuals, if they're in problem debt, could be considered to be financially vulnerable and we've got effective and appropriate things in place to assist anybody in financial difficulty. We've had forbearance as a creditor. We've had different ways of dealing that as debt collection um, companies in more recent years. And, and we would want to to make sure that's true for all of our customers. But there's something fundamentally different at where you, you overlap with non-financial vulnerability. And I think it's today Christians Against Poverty released. Is it um, stacked against their new mm-hmm. report? And it's really, really interesting because only a third... Um, of all the customers, all the clients that they're working with are presenting with one or less non-financial vulnerabilities. They've all got financial vulnerabilities, and then they've been measuring all the other factors, all the other issues that are going on in their lives, and only a third have less than one other issue. So so it's more of a focus on those individuals that we need to be thinking more broadly about as opposed to, as it were, just the financial side. Emma, do you think that's right?
2: You know, in today's society, I think, you know, you're... Even the people that are sitting in this room, um, if they've not been impacted along the way throughout their life of a, a potential, what we you know deem as a vulnerability, it is a a situation a, and that could be a circumstance. It could be a medical situation. You go, you can go in and out of periods of vulnerability. So you know, the, you know just even in the term, the word vulnerability how that is perceived by somebody. You know, we don't use that language. It's understanding, you know, for the purposes of today and and this podcast, we'll reference it as vulnerabilities, but actually life is challenging in today's society and we have a duty to recognise where those challenges are, quite frankly, and it can present itself in any shape or form along the way and our responsibility is to identify that understand what's led them to fall into this situation how does it impact you today and what do we need to be mindful over the next coming months and providing we build a decent rapport and speak to people in a civilized manner as how we would speak to our family our friends um, you know we will get to the point of understanding what that person actually needs and and that's that's the exciting stuff for us because you're encouraging to you know, our point earlier, it's one thing to get somebody to a point where they're actually disclosing that information. The really exciting stuff is actually being able to identify that before it's needed to be disclosed. Um, and you will only ever get to that point by speaking to somebody in a very conversational manner, where that person, you know, breaks down fears and barriers that they've built up, rightly or wrongly, in their head from previous experiences with other people. So. You know, it is not a badge that I would like anyone to be wearing that, you know, you're never going to say to somebody, oh, do you feel vulnerable? You should be passed over. You know, it's just understand what's going on in that person's life and how you can support them and make sure that you have identified that and got them on the right journey. Excellent.
0: And that's a really useful reminder when we look at policy documents um, to have things like the Christians Against Poverty examples. Um and to then when we read things like conch to bear in mind actually some of these categorizations are there to help us in policy but in practical terms you know we need to think in a, a different way it was very impressive as also as well that Colin was uh, reciting all those uh, conch references <laughs> he's not actually got conch in front of him I suspect he's got it tattooed on his forearm somewhere so um, let's drill down a little bit now to today's front line and kind of um, Bob and Emma ask you to come back on this I'm really interested in what you're seeing on the front line of collections activity at the moment if we really drill down kind of what stands out at the moment the types of vulnerable situations you're commonly seeing and hearing about what are the trends and patterns and
1: have these really changed much over the years or have they stayed fairly static? i am gonna touch on something was said about awareness, and this is just before I answer that question, is, is something that interests me, is that as customers understand more about why they feel the way they do, and there's a the stigma of mental illness is in decline. I think people are now uh, can admit that they've got depression, bipolar, et cetera, et cetera. The next stage is for them to trust the debt collection industry. And I'll touch on that later with when I go into a rant about uh, social media and the news and certain c- consumer champions. But if you can build a trust so that people will say, you know, I'm not ashamed of what's happening to me or the way I feel, and I will trust the debt collection company. Um, following on from that, it's, I think, that because there is this element of trust now, People who work in our industry, traditionally we'd say someone's 20 years old, they've got no life experience, they can't possibly understand. But I think that people of a younger age do understand now because people in their family are admitting they're ill. You know, their parents are admitting they've got issues, their grandparents, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the knowledge in our industry and the the brilliant training which two of the people in the room, Colin and Chris, have uh, very kindly come into our offices and uh, helped us, I think the, the awareness now is at such a high level... Both parties can enter into a discussion to actually ascertain what is the best way forward. And as we'll touch on now, and it's a, a long footage way to get to this, is it's really complex because I've, I've written down here the types of things we're seeing a lot of are depression, bipolar, anxiety, gambling, uh, various addictions, drug addictions. And the big one is, of course, age-related. Uh, society is getting older, but... Um, and we're now seeing people who fall within our companies who owe debts are in their seventies and eighties. It's very unique, um, and it's 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 better. It's far better than it's ever been. Um, And it is that element of awareness and trust, et cetera. Um, But I think those are the main forms. I'd be interested in Emma's view on that.
0: So with the older customers, just before we move on to Emma, what are you having to do differently? So we've we've talked about some of the things Emma was mentioning, keeping it simple, being human, connecting with people. Is there a need to take a different approach with different types of groups of vulnerable customers or are you treating them in the
1: same way? How, How are you getting to the bottom of this, Bob? I think you have to treat each case on its merits. If someone's got depression, they'll probably own up and say, you know, I've got depression, and you can use that discussion to work out what is best for them and understand whether it's bipolar with periods of, you know, ups and downs or whether it's uh, continual. And you can have a conversation about how should we treat you, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, you don't, you feel uncomfortable with a phone call, you'd rather it was a text or an email, etc., the problem with age-related is that sometimes people who have issues when they're older don't actually understand that they are ill. Um, the you know what something that reflects in eighty-year-old is um, they may not know they're ill. So you have a conversation with them, and they may find it slightly patronising if you if you say you know you. Are you, you If you said to someone, by the way, are you suffering from Alzheimer's? You're probably not going to facilitate a good discussion. Um, So it's actually identifying that the person who is old, without being patronising and making assumptions, actually does need specialist help. Mm. Um, Emma, are you seeing similar things to Bob there? Bob's mentioned an ageing
0: cohort in the population and mental health. Are you seeing the same things or are you seeing other other, Um, other kinds of things? To follow
2: on from Bob's point, you know, in terms of age, yes, we are... um, living much longer and, you know, I I can think about how those people feel that are in that older category. They have, you know, what I would say is that they're cut from a slightly different cloth. They're very proud. Um, if they fell into this particular situation, to Bob's point, maybe they don't necessarily recognise certain things. I think it's, again, our responsibility to have a conversation and sometimes you just need to disperse these barriers of, do you know what? You're not. You're not just by yourself. There's many other people that are in this situation, and I think from our point of view, once you, you know, you remove those barriers of somebody thinking, oh, you know, it, it's just me. You know, I've got myself into this situation. I've got to manage it. I've got to. You know, one of the biggest things with people that are much older is we don't want them. Their desire is sometimes far greater than their capability. But having a conversation with people and actually being able to talk to that person, you should be able to pick up on certain. Triggers. They're designed to repaint. Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, You know, um, I don't want people, at, you know, and certainly anyone in our organisation wouldn't want to. You know, seasonality is a big thing for us. So you think about people that are much older. When it gets around to winter time, you know, yes, okay, they may have a small premium that that, that supports them in terms of their heating etc but I don't want people to feel that they have to continuously commit to their repayments if it's a bit colder at home or they need a little bit more extra money for certain other things you know you have to as a uh, as a working in the recoveries accept that you have to have that level of flexibility and you will only understand what that flexibility or what's necessary in line with that is if you're actually Asking those questions and making that person not feel like that they're they're an isolated case that there's many other people that are in that situation. So how
0: are you assessing that need, Emma? How are you getting to the bottom of? Because at the start, Bob was talking right at the start about well, we used to look really at this situation of collections. You know, cash is king. Let's let's get that money. Now, twenty years on, you know, mm-hmm. digging deeper into the nuances. How are you getting to those nuances practically, though?
2: I think for us is, and again, you know. It is just by talking. You, you know, we don't have a scripted call framework. We we have a conversation with people. To Colin's point, you know, when you're conducting those affordability assessments using an SFS, there's there's lots of things there that will highlight whether there is particular ways in people's spending patterns that would cause you a little bit of concern, you know if it, if you know food is one of the classic examples i i you know we you have you know spending guidelines etc that you will look at and they, and they are simply that a guideline just you know people that have different type of medical dependencies will spend differently from somebody else so i think for us going through that affordability assessment understanding having a conversation with somebody breaking down those barriers that you're an isolated case and there's many other people in today's society that, you know, is suffering in in a very similar sort of way and that we're here to help. It is that simple, Chris. There isn't, you know, there's no special thing that we have in our back pocket other than just treating people like they're people. And I think, and having, you know the want to understand what that person's going through, and that's how they will give you a lot of information. To come back to the other point in terms of what are we seeing new today? I mean, we worked together quite a, a number of years ago when we did the Bristol University research, and I think, you know... That informed our new 21 steps and and, and that was great for us where we asked, you know, a number of our frontline staff to take part in a survey um, to really tell us exactly what that feels like in dealing with certain disclosures. And to no surprise, two of the biggest things that came up was things like bereavement, terminal illness. You know, we've got to remember our frontline staff no matter how much training and how good that training is they're not gps they don't understand every type of symptom condition um and this is where it's really important for you know us as an organization the trigger is a trigger but it's the impact of the trigger and the potential risk of detriment that it causes it could be any type of trigger you know to bob's point if somebody has depression doesn't necessarily mean that we stigmatise that person and say, you have depression, so therefore you must need the support of our sensitive support team. Actually, do you know what? No, I don't. I'm managing it. I get up every day. I can go to work. I have the right level of medication. And our frontline staff are equipped through quite a robust training process to be able to identify that, and again with terminal illness.
0: Fantastic. So how do you evaluate where collections are sitting on this, Sarah? Kind of, you know, how, how do you see things?
3: Well, as to what's been mm. changing, um, it's hard to tell what is actually changing underneath and what we're just looking for more. So, I mean, I certainly I think we're seeing a lot more gambling as a problem. And I think that's not just because we're looking more. I think it is actually an increasing problem with particularly online gambling. Um, financial abuse... I think has always been there, but we are actually looking for it more nowadays, so we, we tend Absolutely. to I- identify um, that as more. One of the big problems from five, eight years ago is the extent to which people's disposable income is under pressure and the extent to which a lot of people's lives are much more uncertain with... Um, less certain work patterns, more erratic incomes and the freezing of the benefits and withdrawals of other benefits. So those have created an environment where life just generally feels a lot more uncertain, even if you don't have mental health problems to start with. But one thing I've sort of felt listening to um, Emma and Bob is that it sounds like somebody's got a mental health problem and it's affecting their debts, but actually it's a two-way factor. The debts themselves are affecting somebody's mental health. So when we're talking about whether somebody is financially vulnerable or vulnerable in other ways, there's, it's often interlinked and in that just having financial pressure causes you to make often hasty decisions, bad decisions, and they can spiral and get out of control.
2: And I don't disagree with that, Sarah, you know, um, from our point of view, we understand, you know, we, we was at a, a, a members conference that I alluded to when we sort of first met again, you know, and the national audit office had presented one of their reports on tackling problem debt. And the strain that that's putting on you know local authorities or it's putting on the National Health Service so you're absolutely right you know they they come in tandem you know if if you have a um a financial problem then it's going to lead to some sort of stress levels increasing which is then going to be exasperated by your family setup. so mm. this is where you know they're not just one isolated thing they will they can be a multiple
4: mm. multitude
2: of different triggers
4: Colin so there's many things you could follow up there. Let me just put it in context again. So I might get this the wrong way round. So hopefully these two organisations will forgive me. But my understanding is, if you talk to Step Change or you talk to the Money Advice Service, they will say, <clears throat> on average, the uh, average person that owes or has problem debts has either seven or eight different creditors. Okay. So so when we look at it as a creditor or from a credit perspective, you're looking at one tiny bit of a jigsaw. Um, we have an advantage if, if there is such a thing in the advice sector that we're, we're looking at all those seven or eight different um, different creditors on average. So, so our, our customers, our clients have very different experiences with many of those. I, th- I think we can't understate um, enough the significant change that's taken place within the FCA regulated sector. Um, but actually and, and indeed we could say the, the, the likes of some of the utilities where gem have followed in a, in a similar angle that you, you cannot understate the, the change that's taken place. but there are some real dinosaurs out there still. Um, and the government sector in particular is a problem. Um, and so you have to bear in mind that, that the sort of thing that happens when we talk to our clients that, that you know when we, when we dig into their stories, it'll be, it'll go along these lines. I took this really horrific call from someone who was a bailiff to do, uh, trying to get my council tax. And then I had this really horrific call with a debt collection uh, organisation and the reason I had the secondary difficult call was because they were in such a dramatically bad place from the first call before that they, they they spoke to that collector who no doubt was trying to do their absolute bestest if there was such a word um to assist that that customer and and digging really deep with all their new skills and all their understanding of this sector and sometimes we just have to remember to take a step back it isn't just about this issue that i'm dealing with now with this person and we might need to to, to think more about the emotional intelligence of what's going on and so the most successful firms from my opinion of, of some of those in the in the in the debt collection center and creditors Would be those that are able to pick up on the signals right at the start of a call and recognize "Mm, this person. I've never spoken to this person before, I don't know this person, but there's some anxiety. It doesn't mean they've got anxiety, but there's a condition. But actually, there's just something that I might need to just give a bit of space to, a bit of time, just to sort of unpack what is going on here, as opposed to many calls that I might listen when I go to some organizations who aren't doing this very well. And it almost feels like attrition, where you're like a hamster going around on this wheel. Still, and actually they're just trying to get you to fit their system and I think for those organisations that are doing really really well and there are many in the FCA FCA regulated sector they've actually taken a step back they're listening to the individual customer they're trying to just show the right amount of empathy to understand the bigger picture and then actually genuinely say well we've actually got some things we can do to support and take this further forward but whatever we do as a debt collection organisation or creditor in that sector we have to remember there is a bigger a picture and so it's going to be a rocky road just because it's worked out well for us today in this context we have to bear in mind that there might be another day when they got another uh, letter or difficult conversation with someone who knocked at their door who said something completely different um, i had someone who was polish at the advice center uh, just last week And um, it was in in the context of council tax, Um, they were paying £25 a fortnight to this bailiff. We rang up the council to establish there was no debt, the the council agreed to look into it. They failed to do so, but they did say that the customer could stop making any payments while they looked into it. So because the council failed to look into it and address it, the bailiff started contacting them, which resulted in lots of red letters threatening prison. I mean, it's an utter disgrace, but that's the context that sometimes we have to bear in mind that, that, you know, people don't know which way to turn. So years ago, in the good old days, it wasn't quite so good, of course, what would have happened is he that shouted the loudest got the money. Now we're trying really hard, we've, we've seen this bar that's been raised quite dramatically across the FCA regulated sector, so just back to our six, sorry, seven or eight different creditors, probably five or six of those are working to a really good standard, but there's still one or two in the mix where it's going badly wrong for those people and they feel intimidated just as they did before. And so our plea has to be that whatever we do inside the FCA regulated space, we work as a, as a, as a combined team, as it were, where we actually make it appropriate and send the right signals back through the FCA to government, that we see this bar raised for everybody else. We should all be working to the same standard. Bob, do you want to come in there? Because you've been doing some work with local authorities.
1: Yeah, the, the uh, Interim, The it was a chance meeting we had with someone extremely high up at Hammersmith and Fulham Council. And this individual was genuinely concerned about the way bailiffs were used. And it's not a fundamental objection to a bailiff, Or indeed, uh, the fundamental there is a fundamental objection to the fact that you can be jailed for non-payment of council tax. Um, But it's it's the way they're used. And if uh, for people who don't understand this, you could you could literally um, forget to pay your monthly instalment you get a reminder. And within a very, very short period of time, if you don't respond to that reminder, the right to pay by instalments is removed and the full annual payment becomes payable. Now, people panic, people forget, etc. People are, you know, vulnerable ill. At that point, they instruct a bailiff. So the the, the journey from uh, missing a payment to a bailiff is a very, very short period of time. Um, And of course, once he goes to a bailiff, irrespective of whether the bailiff behaves in accordance with regulation, uh, fees are added on top and the stress of someone knocking at your door is, is horrific. Now, this may, may happen to a brand new customer. It may happen to someone the council is absolutely aware from the previous year are vulnerable mentally or etc. Why on earth would you send it to a bailiff in year two when in year one you discover the person's ill? It's, it's unbelievable. So what we, we've done is we've got a project with Hammersmith where we're saying instead of instructing a bailiff... Why don't you give the account, give the customer to us, and we would do these really clever things that the councils are unable to do. For example, phone them up and talk to them. <laughs> uh, and councils don't do that. Um, secondly, what about this one, this is amazing one? Send them an email. Um, so someone who is in a vulnerable position, maybe they're happy to talk to someone to help them uh, listen to their problems. Secondly, they may get an email saying, why don't you call us? That has to work, and the results in in very, without um, going into too much detail, we've demonstrated that even where a bailiff has failed, we're collecting money by the unique way of actually having a conversation, introducing ourselves and saying, how can we help you? Um, and it really doesn't matter if the person says, I'll pay you over 24 months. The council are getting their money. Um, the council's currently have this focus. It has to be paid by the end of the financial year. And if you can't pay it by the financial end of the year, you're a bad person, and we're going to send the chaps around to knock on your door and add a substantial amount of fees. And we've demonstrated it with Hammersmith, and we're now taking on other councils, Slough, Birmingham, et cetera. And there's no magic wand to do and this is communication. Um, and most people want to pay their debts, the vast majority do, and if someone phones up and explains, yes, you know, we know you're in financial difficulty, you know, you can pay by instalments, we don't care that it's not going to be paid by uh, the end of March, we'll let you have more time, it it helps them enormously, you know, their mental state they're in, it's kind of relief, and they do pay. Mm -hmm. So why not treat people with respect? Do you want to come in there, Sarah?
3: Yeah, I mean, Colin mentioned at the start that um, the common financial statement was a a huge milestone and that and um, the standard financial statement that's replaced it. If a creditor will pay attention to that, it is just a huge step forward because you can have a genuine conversation about how much a customer can afford without the artificial you've got to pay it in the current financial year and that is really important. Outside of the um, so outside of the Consumer Credit Act stuff, when you've got bills, utility bills, water bills, council tax bills, it can be a really difficult problem for the customer to understand that they have to be paying the current year's bill plus money towards the arrears, and that's made worse when the previous bills are divided up by. Uh, financial years as well so you can easily have somebody who's got the current year's water bill and three pre- three financial years worth of debts one of which has been passed to a debt collector and they're supposed to have a conversation with the debt collector and they they say oh yeah well I could pay this much towards it and you say no you can't because you've got your current bill and you've got the other two years which don't seem to have been passed to the debt collector for reasons which you can't understand um so it's that the billing is confusing, they're with different people and the concept of trying to keep up to date with the current bills is actually quite different from um, you know, credit cards and, and loans and things which, which are much simpler to deal with. So we do need a much better understanding, we need to be talking to the people, we need simpler billing and we need to be able to get rid of the artificial nature of dividing things up into financial years.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: we've we've had
0: a listener question just to prove we've got listeners it's kind of a from sarah Sargent. and um sarah's asking um she's saying uh, to paraphrase it debt collection firms know much more about vulnerability than they did uh, a decade a decade ago but does this knowledge mean they're now less likely to write off certain types of debt because they have a far better understanding of the course of a condition or the situation that someone's going through so write-offs, do they do they still happen?
2: Absolutely, they do. Um, you know, especially for, I can vouch. You know, I will regularly look at um, requests for write-offs. I think you know this is a whole whole subject that you can we can start exploring in the sense of you know I'm I'm dealing with other parties that the money advice services etc. to understand who's you know. Domestic domestic abuse and um, economic abuse and things such as that are legacies that people are actually contending with. And when they, you know, they're not impacted, they're impacted today by something that happened many years ago. Um, and when I had a conversation with them and said, look, you know, when you're engaging with a creditor and... We have to feel confident and reassured that you're working in the best interests of that individual because they're coming to you for support and for guidance. Um, So when you write into a creditor and ask for that, and to my point earlier, yes, we will have a look. If that is the right treatment and we cannot see any potential change for the future for that individual, then, you know, Listening to previous podcasts, you're absolutely right. You cannot keep holding a customer if that's not the right outcome for that individual. Um, What we also, and I'd like people to bear in mind, is we have to be fair and consistent. So we talk about the old days of who shouts the loudest. It isn't about that. We have to judge each each individual on their own circumstances and what the right treatment is for them. And as a credit, as I'm sure Bob will, or as a working in the debt recovery, as Bob will agree, we have a whole host of different tools that are available to us. We have the benefit through understanding the standard financial statement. We have the ability to you know set up sustainable and affordable repayment plans for that person and review them periodically not in a set time frame but that is bespoke to that individual's needs um, that we can we can extend over a much longer period of time Um so from our point of view does it necessarily mean that we have to write that off no does it mean Yes, we will write that off if there, you know, there's absolutely no other course of action that is in the best interests of that individual.
4: It. Colin, write off. So they. Uh... I mean, I think this whole thing's been quite a journey for for many organisations. So you know, starting um, going back to the Malg days, really, you'd go round to firms and, and you'd have a conversation about vulnerability or mental health specifically. And what would happen is that you would sort of get these raised eyebrows and like, oh yeah, I sort of I, I can understand these these people exist, but we don't have any of them here. Um, and then it sort of went to the other extreme where anybody who rang up with any mental health condition, oh my goodness, we better write the whole lot off because we haven't got a clue what to do with it. Um, and I think there is a maturing, and I think this is really positive and really important so that we get to where Emma's just talked about, where we actually weigh things on an individual basis. Mm-hmm. So we don't say everybody that's got bipolar, this is what happens, or everybody that's got anxiety, this is what happens, or any other vulnerable situation for that matter. We actually look at it on a case-by-case basis um, and make what I hope is then an informed decision. Sarah, you want to come
3: in? I agree with that, but I would say that I think as debt advisors... We are too quick to settle for token payments Mm. um, in a situation where we absolutely know nothing is going to have changed in a year's time or five years' time and that we actually should be quicker to ask in those situations to make the case for a write-off or to say, let's have a review, and if it is still the same
2: Mm. in six months'
3: time or 12 months' time, will you then consider a write-off?
2: I think you're absolutely right, Sarah. You know, we... We respect that we have to have a lot of trust in you, uh, you know, Citizens Advice Bureau, anybody who's representing, working on the best interests of that customer. So when you come to an organisation, you know, token payments, token payments are simply something that should be a short-term solution. This is not a solution, you know, a pound a month is not something, you know, for us at Cabot, we... Honestly, we put the customer at the heart of what we do. It is not, it, our, our aim is to support that customer to become debt free as quick as possible within their means. One pound a month on something that, you know, even at £500, pound, it is never likely to get paid off. So we have to work out what the right solution is for that person. Now, it may be just for a short term that that is what's needed. Um, but again, long term we need to be reviewing those individuals and going is this really the in the best interest of you and our organisation mm-hmm.
4: and and i think sorry chris i think the um, the debt advice sector has had to amend and change and 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 learn as well so again there'll be another drop curb that we could talk about at this point so in England and Wales, that would be the debt relief orders. In Scotland, no doubt, it's the debt arrangement scheme, whereby we don't necessarily ask for some of those things. We might just deal with a crisis by putting something possibly in the short-term arrangement with token payments and actually behind it, then make sure we, we do the credit reference checks, get all the information and put it through a debt relief order. So I think sometimes there are some simpler answers for a bigger picture than, again, just the one that you might be looking at.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. Now, we, we, we've got a uh, the issue of communication comes up quite a lot. We've had some... Um, you don't, won't believe there's more listener questions on communication and collections. So, um, Lee Healy, um, who we all know from Income Max and Vanessa Northam from Tully have both asked about uh, communication channels, routes into collections. Uh, Lee in particular said, um, should all creditors be made to have an email channel for people to contact when they're in arrears? Um, he, I noticed this week on a case, how difficult it actually is to try and contact a creditor and send information. Having email would make it easier for people to deal with these issues out of hours after work. And Vanessa added about, you know, some people can't access... Uh, voice channels, uh, telephone channels as easily. So what's, what's happening in collections to recognise that people don't just have um, communication preferences, but they have communication needs?
1: You should allow someone to communicate in the, uh, <clears throat> the way that suits them. So I think uh, at and I'm sure at Cabot and uh, uh, all of us in the industry, you, you, you set up every communication channel you possibly can. Phone is obvious, uh, telephone, email, text Uh, we've introduced chatbot recently where you can go online and uh, have a conversation which initially is with a uh, with a pre-programmed very very sensible machine which can give obvious answers to obvious questions and if if the the need is slightly greater it will go through to a human. for anyone not to have those communication channels in, in you know 2019 is staggering, to be honest. And I kind of agree with Lee. I think uh, maybe regulation's too strong, but really there has to be... Uh, you, you can't exist in, in the dark ages. You have to let every communication channel be available, and it's the customer's preferences.
0: And can you carry out these conversations fully over a range of communication channels? Or is it, oh, you can contact us via email or chatbot, and then we're going to insist you come onto the phone to talk through this in detail. Emma's shaking her head there. Um,
2: I think I think for us, as you said, you know, we're the days of technology is moving on. It, it you know it eludes me sometimes as to how many channels you make available to a customer. You know, for me, we have sixty thousand customers. Uh, that visit our website and use our online services. So it is clearly a need there for our customers. But at the same time, having all of these different channels, you need to understand exactly what's happening on all of those different channels. And, you know, we're really fortunate and we've invested in technology analytics to be able to identify what that feels like for a customer. It's great that you ask a customer, what's your preference? You know, when you think about customers that may be susceptible to detriment and they're not quite aware and they choose a particular channel, again, it's our responsibility to make sure that we're able to monitor those interactions via those channels. Um, But to Bob's point, you know, if if a customer chooses, and that could be somebody who's not necessarily... Vulnerable, but if if a customer chooses to engage with somebody at twelve o'clock at night because that happens to be convenient for them, or they don't want to speak to you because it raises a level of anxiety and they just don't want to speak to somebody, you know, then you have to facilitate those options for an individual.
0: So so the message is getting through to collections that you know have these range of channels. But Sarah and Colin, I mean, as advisors contacting creditors and representing kind of clients. Is that the case? You know, again, is it a case of a message as opposed to a practice? You know, people are talking about these things, but they're not happening.
3: I think um, I think most debt collectors handle emails uh, reasonably well. Uh, original creditors, not so much. Um, certainly um, some of the mobile phone companies, you can't put in complaints by emails. A lot of the catalogue companies, you can't put in complaints or ask questions by emails. You're forced to either go through a secure form, which is quite restrictive, um, or or what they want to to phone up customer services, which can be inconvenient if people are at work, or people just don't want to do it because they are anxious about the process. They don't feel they'll be in control of it. They want a record of what has actually been said. Emails can answer a lot of these questions. I I don't think it's actually a problem for the debt collectors, um, but it certainly is for some original creditors. So I I take
4: a little bit of an issue with the question. I'll explain why in a second. But... um I completely agree with Bob that you cannot regulate over these issues. It, it just seems absurd to you know, almost say thou shalt have an email available. I mean, that just seems ridiculous. It's, surely it's got to be much deeper. It comes down to culture and it comes back to what Emma was saying. is like, how can I have a conversation with somebody? And if that person chooses its email, great, I'm happy with the email. If they want to talk to me on their mobile, great, I'll talk to you on your mobile, etc., etc., etc. So what we do at the Advice Centre, I'm sure other firms would do exactly the same when we see somebody and and, and you just have to bear in mind that many of our um, clients that we see are what we might call the high hanging fruit on the on the vulnerability tree. So it's really really important to have as many active possible contact points. Why? Because we might talk to someone over the phone. We might they might come in and see us, and then suddenly their depression gets so challenging for them. They're not picking up the phone and they're they missing all the appointments. So what do we want? We want an email, perhaps, that we can fall back on and just keep contact with that person. And if they want to email us at 12 at night because they can't face talking even to us, that's fine with me as long as we can keep some contact and do the things we need to do. And then guess what? They stop emailing and they give us a call and say, oh, actually, I'm feeling a bit better now. Can I come in and see you? And we'll say, of course you can come in and see us. It's, it's just being flexible. It's that conversation, isn't it? And I think, you know, if we have as many of those available um, and my advice centre sadly doesn't have the resources of some of these bigger firms so it should be easier for larger firms to consider the different channels that are available um, but surely we just want to make a conversation as easy as possible. End of.
0: So it Making these conversations as easy as possible. Let's think about technology and widening up. What what's coming down the line? What are consumers going to notice, or maybe not even notice, because it'll be invisible in the background, um, around communication and making the process and the journey easier.
2: Thanks, Bob. I was just going to say, I think you know, as as I mentioned before, technology is moving on. I mean, even for us at Cabot, we're probably maybe one or two individuals that have utilised live analytics to support our frontline staff so that, you know, we're we're now in a position to detect what we consider potential triggers for us to be able to accept much earlier on in a conversation um, and support our frontline staff. Um, as we said, you know, they can be of a young demographic um, and although we can give them all the training in the world at the same time as actually having a conversation with someone, it's really important that we support them and guide them to be able to identify any of those types of disclosures to understand that they now need to make an assessment whether that customer needs a different type of treatment and journey. So from a frontline staff, that's great for ours because, as I said, we've got that support. I think from customers, again, we've talked about it, there's multiple different ways in which they can engage with people and that's really exciting for us, you know, having apps to remind people about their payments who might get busy with life and forget you know to online services where they can disclose what they need to and making sure that they've got the confidence and reassurance that someone's watching out for those that information that comes over and you know what if that customer then suddenly needs to be picked up in a different channel that's okay because we've identified something that we think we need to think about for that individual and again for a customer's point of view you know it's understanding does this task that the customer's trying to complete right now doesn't necessarily need to come into a call centre? And, and even as simple as, you know, you asked right at the beginning, what has changed? Communication, in even in letters. We had a voice session only a couple of days ago where we invite our customers to come and tell us about our services. And, you know, it's, you know, behind the screen, we want to watch and understand what that feels like for the types of services we're offering. And we ask them about, what does the letter feel? Now, you know, to Colin's point, you can have seven different creditors that are sending you letters. You know, it, there's, it can be pretty confusing at the best of times. And, you know, the language that you use in that letter is the first thing that's gonna make you decide, do I do I pick up the phone? Do I go on the online? Do I send them a letter? Do I send them an email? Um, So I think that's really exciting but there are still work to be done um, and making it easy for individuals to understand. But
1: Yeah, I'd echo those thoughts. We, we did a a, a analysis some years ago on, on our letters. And I'd echo Emma's thoughts. The letters were quite archaic, the way they were written. And we had a private company come in and we said, how can we change our letters? And, you want someone to communicate, that's the, that's the obvious thing. But we found that most of our letters mention payment, and they said that kind of puts people off because it looks like you're saying all the nice words in the top part of the letter, but the bottom bit is, by the way, give us a call, you, you owe money. Um, we have letters that don't even talk about debt. they are just say, you know, hello, how are you, haven't heard from you for some time, et cetera, et cetera. And it encourages a communication. And one thing I'll give credit to Chris and Colin to, because I think you both worked on this. We were talking earlier about the way we communicate with customers. And I can't remember which document it was in, but it was the use of acronyms to help staff. And one of the key acronyms we is IDEA. We love a good idea. Acronym. <laughs> uh, We use TEXAS, and people are listening. Please feel free to look it up. But IDEA, and the acronym stands for Impact Duration Episodes and Assistance. And it goes back to just talking to someone and saying, if you've got a vulnerability or you've got an illness, what is the impact on you personally? What is the duration? How often do you get these episodes and how can we help? And for where, um, you know, to reiterate Emma's comments, that when you're talking to a customer, it's it's absolutely paramount. And then following up from that, we do customer feedback surveys. So every time you talk to someone, how was the call? How could we have done it better? And you pick up advice from individuals saying, you know, the call was great, the call was fantastic. However, I do wish you had. And you can use that in training sessions to enhance the way you actually deal with customers. Um, and again, going back to what Emma said, speech analytics is, is one of the key things in that no matter how well you train staff, no matter how nice they are and polite, courteous, etc., they may miss clues, they may miss little things that happen during the call. And speech analytics technology is phenomenal now. You know, every single call is listened to by a machine and it can pick up on things like stammering, failure to answer something fairly quickly, key words are within the search. So you can basically, you know, during this 15 minute conversation, a key thing, might have been missed whereas you can program these machines to say if a keyword was mentioned it flashes up and another individual can say right we've listened to this call Um, there was a keyword you missed let's go back to the customer and say thanks very much we had a call with you by the way we, we missed out on this um, technology is, is fantastic and uh, that's been developed by all the big agencies all the
0: time. So Sarah and Colin, and maybe Colin first, how we bring together the technology uh, development with the human development, the training and the
4: organisational kind of culture. So just to pick up on, on some of the things that were just said around technology, you know, I'm, I'm wondering whether I'm going to have a job in 10 years' time with artificial intelligence doing everything I do at the moment. I'm hoping that my brain will, will still be beyond the, the scope of some of this uh, innovation that's on its way. Um, seriously, though, I, I, think, um, I think there is only so much a company can do with, within a sort of a technological framework. So I've been to one organisation fairly recently who looked at from a QA perspective, what could they get the machine to QA? And then actually, what do we need a human being to look at? So the human beings had more time to look at the things they should be looking at because the computer was doing the other bits. And I think some really clever things that we can do here. But there clearly are limitations to this as well. And we just need to make sure we're focusing in the right direction. Uh, coming back to the training question. Mm-hmm. Um, so so, so we, we've, we've seen many organisations looking at training. Once upon a time, they say, come in and deliver some training, I, I guess, very much along the lines of, we don't know very much about this. Come and teach us something. Come and enlighten us to pick up on Bob word earlier um, and, and, and so there's been that and then the skill based techniques have come through I think many organisations are again maturing in this space within the FCA regulated space so what they're doing now is that they're inviting us back in at times to do some core calibration with them um, so that a team of people together to listen to some calls and say so as an external perspective we think this was a good call what do you think about this particular call so people using many many varied ways and I think a bit like channels of communication really what's available let's look at it
2: mm-hmm.
4: sorry did you want to say something very quickly there
3: I don't think we're anywhere near the limitations of technology yet, although as a debt advisor, I would be really happy if there was no need for (laughs) debt advisors in 10 years' time. I don't think it's going to happen. Um, But one thing technology can help with is possibly open banking, helping us to produce income and expenditure, a first cut of an income and expenditure much quicker, giving the debt advisor more chance to work on the human interaction side and also then the possibility if we can solve the privacy issues of sharing that across different companies so the same customer doesn't have to do the same income and expenditure statement with seven or eight creditors. Fantastic.
0: I'm going to squeeze in one last question and then kind of round us up. So answer very, very briefly and put it to Bob and to Emma and maybe Colin and Sarah can comment on it. This is from uh, Martha Lawton, who runs the Squanderlust podcast. So we've got a podcast-to-podcast connection here. Um, What do the panelists think of media representations of debt collection and debt collectors' uh, powers? How is that affecting interactions with vulnerable customers?
1: Oh, I'm going to get on my soapbox now. Make it 30 seconds, Um, (laughs) I think it's terrible. And I tell you what it is, they tar us all with the same brush And it makes people scared. If you are sitting indoors and certain media champions, who I know mean well, and we won't mention who, will basically say these people are terrible, they're evil, they're awful, and then the media taught us, the debt collection industry, and with the worst cases of bailiffs. If people started saying you can trust debt collection companies, pick up the phone, talk to them, it would make life a lot easier for both parties and put people's mind at rest. Don't scare the public. Emma, quickly...
2: Absolutely. I think we we can take responsibility for influencing the media. We, it's about everybody has access to the internet and we will put out there legitimate, honest feedback from our customers who have had our service and that's all they need to listen to.
0: Fantastic. And with that, thank you. We've reached the end, sadly. Um, we started today's podcast by looking back to 2007 and the mail guidelines. We worked through the challenges that are currently been experienced on the front line, considered the issue of communication and technology, and ended with public perceptions of debt collection. Now, during this, you may have nodded along, uh, but hopefully not off, um, shouted in disagreement, or simply felt that the picture that we painted is perhaps more complex than we've uh, made out. So either way, please don't keep it to yourself. Do let us know what you think through the Vulnerability Academy portal, or on Twitter, where I'm at Chris underscore Fitch. Until then, it only leaves me to thank our guests, Emma Banjies. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Sarah
3: Williams. Thank you, Chris.
0: Sounds a bit like Alan Partridge here, doesn't it? Bob Kingdon. Thank you. <laughs> and Colin Trend. Thank you very much. Uh, for their time and expertise, and as always, to your good selves for listening. Thank you. That was a Vulnerability Academy podcast, brought to you by UK Finance and the Money Advice Trust. For more information, visit ukfinance.org.uk and moneyadvicetrust.org vulnerability.
4: Produced by the podcast company.